0: Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello everybody and welcome to a forecast from the Society of Evidence-Based Policing. My name is Alex Murray. I'm a commander in the Met responsible for violence and getting violence down in London uh, and it's a real great pleasure that uh, I have introducing you to Paul Taylor, the first police chief scientific advisor uh, and we're going to delve into what that means for policing in just a minute. Before I do that though, I just thought I'd mention what the Society of evidence based Policing is. So we are here, where a, a load of police officers, um, thousands of police officers across the UK and around across the world are members of SCBP. They're committed to using the best research evidence to understand what is effective in policing to benefit communities. And we want to use it more. We want to communicate it more and we want to produce better research evidence. Um, so, there's probably no better person to speak to than the chief uh, police scientific advisor. Um, Evidence based policing is really about what works, what's effective. And I guess it's rooted in the scientific method around observation, experimentation, rigorous testing, rigorous measuring. And if we're interested in why something is happening, using really good, rigorous qualitative techniques that overcome our own human biases so we can get as close to the truth as possible. Uh, and it's Therefore, I really welcome that the UK has appointed a Chief Police Scientific Advisor. And so, Paul, it is really great to have you online. Thanks very much for coming. Um, Um, Great. It's it's really good to have you. Perhaps you could um, tell all of us, because it's a relatively new concept in policing, what a Chief Scientific Advisor does and how that Chief Scientific Advisor community works.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Chief Scientific Advisors... I think, serve two principal functions. Um, The first is uh, advisory, in the sense that we provide independent scrutiny and challenge to all areas of science and technology. Uh, And perhaps even more broadly than that, we give a science opinion on all decision-making and issues that are relevant, in my case, to policing. Um, We do that, uh, obviously, as individuals, but we also do that by making sure that there's a community around us of experts from industry, from academia, from within our own fold, um, to really ensure that those voices uh, are well heard and are accounted for in the decision making that we have for science and technology. So that advisory function is a really important thing. And you you mentioned that a CSA network, Um, All government departments have, or most government departments, I should say, have chief scientific advisors. And that's a really powerful network, an influential network of science across government. So, you know, when a a challenge around uh, achieving net zero comes up, as of course it does within policing, I can reach out to that network uh, and get perspectives which are far different from my own and expert advice that's far different from my own. So that's one side of the function. The other side I would say is strategic. Um, And within policing, that's very much around uh, trying to encourage coherence, uh, synergies, uh, and identifying areas uh, and barriers even, uh, which can be removed to really uh, crank up the innovation, the adoption of evidence uh, within all corners of policing. Um, In the police uh, sphere, that's a complex landscape. Uh, and so I, I feel that my job is really to try and enable all of the capabilities uh, and, in particular, do a lot of work reaching out to the, what I would call the broader science ecosystem. So how, how can we ensure that police work effectively with industry? How can we ensure that our police capabilities are engaged well with academia so that we can um, secure EU funding and UKRI funding to drive forward uh, big initiatives? Um the, the only way, and, and SEBP is a great example. That. The only way we're going to make progress quickly is to do it as a larger community. Uh, and part of my job is to ensure that larger community um, uh, can prosper as fast as possible.
0: Thanks. It's really interesting. Pe- perhaps can I can I throw some examples in, and you think, and you tell me how you might be involved? So okay. both, um, so say the National Police Chiefs Council got a great idea, and they say, "Look, we want to do this." Or the Home Office um, policy unit working in policing says, "Look, I think Minister, this is a great intervention that we should all be doing." Um, do they? Do we? NPCC
1: and the Home Office come to you and go, "What do you think, Paul?" That, that, that would be one move absolutely. So um, we might take it, for example, to the Science Advisory Council that we're currently setting up in the NPCC, uh, and we would say that this is the evidence base. We feel that this is a robust, strong evidence base that shows clear effect. Uh, What do you as an independent counsel think of this evidence? Um, Where is it weak? Where might we need to strengthen it? Uh, And so on. Um, Alternatively, we might say, well, actually, if we look at this evidence, it's taken us so far. And we as a community know that actually we might need to run a few more trials so perhaps, a, perhaps it's been developed uh, in an experimental setting, and we might need to go and trial it within a couple of forces. Um, that's the sort of thing that my office would try and facilitate, so that we get to that next level of evidence. And, and once we reach that that point where we we have a strong, robust argument, absolutely taking it to Chiefs Council uh, and seeing what the Chiefs uh, collectively think of that approach, and whether we might endorse it nationally, and how we might resource it nationally. would would be a way forward
0: that's that's interesting i've got so many uh questions to ask you your your point around cranking up innovation i think i'll come to later uh because i would i would like to explore how how we can do that Mm. Uh, you're you're relatively new paul into uh into this field Where, where have you come from what's your background what's your interests how did you get appointed
1: Well, so interestingly, my uh, PhD, if we want to go back that far, was in hostage negotiation. So um, I spent uh, lots of time at the old Scotland Yard uh, working with with teams uh, around negotiation uh, and advising then as a a psychology by my background, but advising from that perspective. Uh, And some of those negotiations that we were involved in had a extremism angle, terrorism angle. Uh, And that pulled me into that area of uh, expertise, you know, being able to understand um, issues around motivation of terrorists uh, uh, and being able to explain those from an academic point of view became really important. Um, That led uh, really to... A career that I've had between law enforcement and security, both uh, working at Lancaster University, setting up the cross-faculty institute, which is very broad in its application of evidence into policing, security, everything from the uh, from the arts through to engineering and computing, um, and actually most of our successes came when we started to blend those disciplines. Um, really exciting kind of developments. And then uh, subsequent to that, running the Centre for Research and Evidence of Security Threats, which is the UKIC and Home Office-funded National Centre for Behavioural Science. So much more narrow in its application, but much deeper, and uh, I think quite unusually for an ESRC uh, centre, spending a lot of effort and time getting evidence into practice really thinking about how you can translate that evidence uh, and demonstrably show that what's been shown in academia in experimental settings or through other types of research can have practical impact and spending a lot of time on that. So uh, from my hostage negotiation beginnings, um, leading quite wide uh, uh, portfolios of research and quite narrow but deeper portfolios of research.
0: So I might just unpick some acronyms there. So you right. UK Intelligence Community and ESRC, European Social Research Council, a
1: huge... Uh, Economic and Social Research Council, absolutely. One of our, our, our large research councils here in the UK uh, yeah. that fund research, yeah. Um, and probably the one most relevant to many members of SEBP.
0: Yeah. And so your, I guess your field of expertise, particularly early on, was around negotiation. And I imagine that was quite a... Um, Uh, an area where lots of people have got a lot of ideas uh, and a lot of views, not unlike most things in policing. Mm. And I guess it's quite interesting bringing in you uh, and and how did you apply scientific rigor to the plethora of ideas that people had around, oh, well, this is how you should negotiate, or this is how you should negotiate, because I've got so much experience negotiating, I know this works. Um, How did you weave your way through all of that?
1: So it's really interesting. Um, Negotiation is a field where you're right, there's lots of people, experts, but very few academics, actually. Very few researchers doing this this work. Um, So my approach to it was to take transcripts of actual incidents, uh, to examine those, to code those in meaningful, robust, reliable ways and examine the patterns of what ifs led to what, what cues led to what responses, what ifs led to what outcomes Uh, And, um, you know, through many of the tools we would expect in evidence-based policing, that kind of analysis, that comparative analysis, really start to begin to work out how communication works within those crisis environments and how certain approaches to dealing with challenges um, led to certain responses on average. So that we could then expose those back to the negotiators, um, both through training in real time where it was relevant to do so and in debriefings to, to give a better understanding of what was going on in those processes. Uh, and interesting What's I mean uh, most of my career has been built academic research career at least has been built out of quantifying the qualitative mm, Yeah, really value taken from taking something that you kind of get a sense from it and, and that's not discredit qualitative we may come back to the value of qualitative work in to answer particular research questions later but to take the qualitative quantify and then be able to do controlled comparative analyses um uh to, to identify what's going on there yeah so for sebp
0: we're always we're sort of obsessed in in getting nuggets out to people that are really useful and Most police officers, uh, I guess they're not negotiators, but they will have gone to situations where you need a negotiator and they will know negotiators. Some of our executive committee are prolific negotiators here in London. Um, So in in the spirit of trying to release a nugget out into the evidence based policing community, what, what, what was your finding you know your one minute elevator pitch around what I discovered was effective around negotiation and then we'll go back to being a chief scientific
1: advisor again. Okay um, the first nugget is that the model I produced was not the model that is now widely taught around uh, the world it was adopted and taken on by forces uh, and has been used in different ways. And it's kind of a pre-nugget. But just to say, I think that's a really exciting thing that as, as an academic should embrace. Sometimes you can hold quite tightly to your baby and not want to, to let it go. But actually, I've learned a lot from the way it's been applied. Um, so I, I produced a model that helps you understand um, the motivation or the why behind the, uh, the communication of anyone at any particular time. So to really try and interpret that. And the dimension of that model that's been most useful is uh, uh, the motivational frame. So instrumental, relational, or identity framing. And this is, the f- this is the notion that at any one point in time, you will try and communicate a particular thing. It could be facts and wants. So this is largely an instrumental conversation that we're having now but that's not the only reason you communicate. So sometimes you communicate for relational reasons. So I might try and throw in a terrible joke in a minute, Ax, and the point of the joke is not to communicate that to your, to your membership, but just to, en- to engage the trust in the relationship between yourself and I. Uh, and then still other times, actually the, po- the point of communication is what we would call identity focused. Um, so it might be to uh, criticize you or compliment you and so on. Um, that's broadly known those three types of communication, but what's critical and what the evidence shows is if I'm speaking instrumentally and you're worried about identity, we're not going to get anywhere in the conversation. Ooh. So if I'm saying to you, look, uh, you know, I want to get a pizza into you because you know I can imagine you're really hungry. Uh, and getting food in is a great thing to do in, in, in many crisis negotiation settings. And you're sat there worried about, oh my goodness, my head's you know, you going to shoot me? What's going on here? You're not worried when I when I ask you, do you want pepperoni on your pizza? It, we're not going we're we're talking across purposes. So I mean, I'm being a slightly um, light, although serious example. But actually that uh, becoming in sync in better understanding the motivational driver of what somebody is describing and then linking into that and being in sync with that has been shown to really uh, accelerate cooperation, not just in negotiation settings, but also in interview settings, uh, in uh, CHIS environments uh, and so on.
0: So it's instrumental, uh, identity. What was the third one?
1: Relational.
0: So, if I, I guess if I'm interested in how my relationship is with you, then I find I'm wanting to build rapport, then I will. It will be about me and you, reciprocity, and building that relationship. Exactly that. Exactly that. So it feels like you're teaching us a lesson in how to negotiate, but also how uh, how our marriage could
1: be more successful. <laughs> uh, I'll leave you to speculate yeah. on that one. Yeah, <laughs> you, uh, you
0: heard it here first on STBP folks. We're not just helping you with policing; we're helping you with your personal relationship. Um, Thanks very much. So uh, I guess back to being a, a chief scientific advisor then. Um, what is your, what's your vision for what you want to do with policing over the the next couple of years? And what is your
1: tenure, by the way? Uh, so the, well, let's do the easier question first. And the tenure of any CSA is uh, typically a three-year tenure with potentially an extension. And that is deliberate. And I think it's a good thing because what it means is that our careers are not, uh bound into the role so that you know we can give independent challenge uh, and advice without fearing for our promotion or whatever prospects there's also a sense that you know if you have a new csa every three to five years they inject new energy new ideas uh, new expertise even um so, so that's the tenure the question so um for me next couple of years really reflect uh um, socialising, cementing in a new office. As you said at the beginning, this is a new CSA role. Um, uh, uh, and One has to establish that office and really find out where it can be useful. And as I mentioned earlier, where actually things are running quite smoothly and light touch and support is, is the best solution. So for this, for this financial year in particular, um, we're working extensively on the uh, national science and technology strategy. Um, of which we hope that all members and uh, wide, all members of the community, and by that I mean the large community, including academia and industry, will feed in their views of what they think might be important and what the barriers are that any strategy ought to try and address. Uh, and that strategy is important when it comes to thinking about where we're going to invest our efforts in the next 3, 5, 10, even 20 years um, to drive forward science and technology and policing. So that's a really key piece of work that we need to put there so that we can kind of base all of our subsequent decisions around that. But, um, so, and that is a
0: policing, that's a policing strategy for science and technology. Correct. And, and off that will hang perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm speculating some spending review decisions. You can guide decisions for chief officers in relation to investment in particular areas, for example, and also build collaborations with capabilities that sit outside policing to best meet those challenges. Would I be right? And uh, that's,
1: that's very interesting. Interesting. Absolutely, uh, absolutely that. Um, uh, and of course, the national strategy, uh, also hanging off the national strategy, of course, are roadmaps or strategies for each of our capabilities. So it is not for me to dictate, for example, how forensics develops. The forensic community has its own roadmap of how it wants to develop. Mine is uh, a strategy that says, you know, how can I facilitate that? What, what kind of systems, what kind of processes, what kind of infrastructure can be in place that will really help policing achieve its ambitions? So, so, so how, how are you going to
0: write that, that strategy, I guess, with us and with the community? How does that operate?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're, we're at the beginnings of it. Um, we've started to put together uh, working groups. We started to do a set of interviews with key stakeholders Uh, And coming down the pipeline will be wider consultations where people can feed in. Great. Okay. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. And Uh, and, and, uh, I mean, the other thing that uh, perhaps not all listeners will realise that one of the things that CSAs own is something called the areas of research interest, which are ARIs. Uh, And obviously the strategy feeds into the ARIs or, or vice versa. And ARIs are really crucial because what they are doing is telling everybody publicly those questions that we feel we most need answered so that uh, academia and industry can consult the ARIs and, uh, and, and either work towards them and think, yes, we can answer those, those questions or, or begin to challenge us and suggest that other questions should have appeared in there. It's a way of kind of engaging with the community and letting them know our state of play and what we feel will be most impactful. Yeah, interesting.
0: I'm just going to go down a rabbit hole now, uh, sort of unscripted. But I, was, I'd love your view on this, and I think you've, you've got some insight into this area. So I was reading a interview this morning with the head of maths for Ocado, the online shopping. Okay. Um, and basically how her skills feed the construction of algorithms that. Service demand and supply, warehouse capacity, distance travelled, you know, food going off, minimising food wastage, and how without with the absence of that sort of algorithmic intelligence, the whole model of Accardo and most online businesses, certainly Amazon, of course, um, goes to pot. And and how those companies also protect their mass very rigorously because it gives people a competitive advantage, um, and i this is the rabbit hole, really. I'm just feeling a real deficit of uh, vision and capability in policing around that sort of area at the moment. We we seem to not be doing anything in that area, but focusing quite a lot on the ethics of it before we've even realised any capability associated with it. I've got my own sort of hypothesis, being a digital immigrant myself, you know, born before 1983, that. I can understand ethics, I can't understand Python, so I'm going to concentrate on ethics rather than the value of Python. But i just interested in your views, really,
1: uh,
0: off, I guess, off the science and technology strategy uh, and around sophisticated analysis within policing.
1: Yeah, OK, so there's, there's more going on than you suspect. We are extremely good at hiding our lights under bushels. Uh, I mean, one of the things, one of the delights of my role currently is that I get to go around the country and some of the things that I've seen, some of the innovations are just wonderful. I mean, I've had the opportunity to, to work in different areas of government uh, and I've, I've always been quite keen to stress when I can that they're in no way is pleasing behind the curve. There are things in science and technology that perhaps we do need to get, get up to speed with, but there are other areas where we really lead and innovation, that's one of those. Um, the second interesting point that you raised there is that often the discussions around AI and machine learning are around that kind of predictive policing very much um, I can't remember the name of the film now but that kind of Minority minority report style but actually for policing the biggest benefits of those technologies come in automation It comes in speeding up processes. So rather than filling out paper by hand in triplicate, we're able to to automate it. Rather than have manually officers looking through, uh, say, video material for an extensive period of time for an investigation, we can trim that down and prioritise what material they look through so that we save resources. So actually those technologies in my view, will likely, certainly in the short term, have the biggest impact on policing through automation, um, as opposed to some of those other uh, things that are often discussed in the ethics fold.
0: Yeah, thank you. Really interesting. Well, I'd, perhaps for another time, your insight into some of the great stuff and groundbreaking stuff where we're using that sort of...
1: So, so there are lots of... So, so I mean, uh, there are many communities. So Police Rewired is, is one example of yeah. a community of officers. Um, from around the country who do coding, um, I won't say for fun, but they they take projects, they probably do do it for fun and pizza, but they take projects uh, and, you know, apply their expertise. And it's a great example of that type of innovation, recognising the value that can happen.
0: Yeah, well, our, our great producer, you can't see her online now, Suzanne, but um, uh, Suzanne, if you can find the police rewired... Uh, connection stroke social media link and stick it on the bottom of this that would be wonderful um can I can I ask you in your experience of policing before and now as chief scientific advisor what can we as the police do do better
1: mm. well I'm not how sure should
0: we, how should we change
1: yeah okay so uh I think that's a very difficult question to answer very quickly uh, I think actually the trajectory of travel in relation to science and technology over the last three to five years is, has, has changed, has accelerated and is going in the right direction. It feels like a special time to be involved in S&T in policing. And of course, I'm, I would say that now that I'm the new CSA, but um, you can go to any area of policing now and you can see the influence of evidence-based you can see the scientific thinking, you can see the desire to engage with academia or with industry to drive forward a better understanding of the phenomenon that's being examined and then uh, work to try and work out what types of interventions are likely to be the most fruitful, how can we gain efficiency and so on. So, uh, you know, how can we get better? I think we're on that journey. Uh, And I think the exciting role that I can play is to ensure that we do that efficiently and effectively and and in a way that's value for money to the public.
0: Yeah, thanks. So I guess this will largely be listened to by the community of evidence-based policing practitioners, both police officers uh, and professional researchers, hopefully others as well. And uh, how do you think we will feel your presence and the presence of your your role what benefit will it bring
1: okay so um, i think there are several things that i, I contribute to uh, the first is around really <laughs> helping uh the broadening funding landscape understanding the priorities and the value that evidence-based policing can bring uh, and hopefully hopefully opening up opportunities both for police colleagues to engage, but also for academic and industry colleagues to engage. Um, the more we can uh, socialise and speak about the value of evidence-based policing within the strategy and with the other, within other top-level fora, uh, the, the more um, we can begin to kind of crystallise other funding models, uh, uh, infrastructures and things that will help. In other words, make it the norm to do these things. Um, and it has been a gradual process, of course it has across a decade. Um, the second thing that I'm, my office is responsible for, I'm, I'm really keen on is open science. So this is ensuring that uh, data, that materials, that uh, pre-registration happens and ultimately the reports are made open access. Um, that again, allowing everybody to learn from one another um, it's part of the uh, UK government's uh, uh, open government agenda, um, but we need to do we need to really try drive that forward. The more we can uh, particularly make data available, I think, Um, the the better the responses that we get from the community. And, of course, there are sensitivities to that, no doubt, uh, but there are ways to overcome those sensitivities. There are ways to share that data in in meaningful ways, and perhaps actually sometimes we need to develop those. I think that's really important. Uh, And then the third thing, um, as I've mentioned several times, is I see science and technology as something that everybody should own. It should be part of a community uh, and activities from my office that help drive that community forward, be that uh, 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 annual conferences where we we promote science, be that engaging with different sectors, um, I think will be really important um, for members and a way in for members to engage with a broader set of stakeholders. Mm.
0: So I, I guess, I mean, it's really encouraging to hear. And in a way, tangentially, probably not overtly, you're influencing uh, all officers on the street. You know, just some of the innovations that you would push and encourage. You know, the point you made. If we go back to the conversation around machine learning, you know, the amount of officers that are spending hours watching videos, um, following homicides. You know, decades worth of man hours and staff hours, and um, it, it, it will make it will be truly transformational. So, yeah, it's good. It's really good to have you on
1: board. I would go further than yeah. that. Um, As I argued at the Police Superintendent Association last week, uh, the frontline officer is the most important person in the science journey because actually the thing that scientists really want are problems and it's the owners of the problems that are the most important person in that journey. If you can communicate that problem, get that problem to us, then the scientific method and everybody, everybody can work towards that. But oftentimes we don't know that goal. And, you know, you'll appreciate this, but um, in my own background of hostage negotiation, there uh, um, uh, was a wonderful PhD student now, an academic in the Netherlands, Miriam Oostinger, who was looking around for a project to do within the hostage negotiation arena. And it was over a drink at the bar where she spoke to a police officer who simply said, mistakes, we all make mistakes. I have no idea how to recover from a mistake. What should I do? What impact does it have? And that set her off on, a, on probably a career's worth of journey, examining that issue, that really critical issue that no one had ever looked at before. So,
0: a mistake in a negotiation. So, I'm negotiating with you, and I make an error. It makes the relationship bad.
1: What? How do I? Re- how do I recover that relationship? You, you call me Mike rather than Paul, and I and I get upset by that slur. How do you recover? Uh, so, and genuinely, you know, feel that quite strongly that actually the problem owners, which is often those on the front line, are the people who should be driving science and technology, at least by telling us the problems that they are having, so that we know what we need to solve.
0: So, um, there's probably a bit of a bridge here, but how how can uh, frontline officers, frontline staff, tell you the scientific community? The problems, and, and by the way, I think one of the answers is to the Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Folks, you can contact us, your regional coordinator. We've got relationships with professional researchers. Uh, you can email us and, and tell us what some of the problems are. But what, what's, your, what's your view,
1: Mike? Yeah, it's a great question. So obviously, we've spoken about the strategy. Uh, that would be one way. Um, social media is another way. We're in the process of setting up uh, um, a web presence for science in policing, uh, and that hopefully will provide a way forward um I, there is never going to be one channel is there and i think it's a process of living and learning and identifying what works uh, and frankly from my own perspective going and visiting people uh, mm. and hearing from them firsthand which uh, makes it uh, is how we do it yeah well we'll certainly link to
0: your website when it's uh, when it's up and running great good stuff well i'll I'm really grateful, Mike, that you can speak to us. I'm going to call you that. no one. Um, is there is there anything else you'd like to, I, I guess, bring uh, through through this interview to to uh, officers, professionals watching this um, with the advent of, I guess, your your tenure, really.
1: Oh god. Well, I, I mean, I, so one of the things I didn't realise until we spoke before this meeting was how large and the, the society is, right? it's, it's absolutely wonderful the number of people who engage with that community. It's clearly an important community, um, not least because it's bringing together uh, people, as you said at the beginning, from different countries, but also from different parts of policing and uh, engaging those with the academic experts and industry experts. That's exactly the sort of thing that I think should be happening. Um, uh, and driving forward that evidence is really important. Where, where I think uh, we always have room for improvement is around creating cumulative work and ensuring that the expertise and the leadership is distributed across the, uh, a wide set of stakeholders within the community. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting um, thing that SEBP can promote and, and engage.
0: Mm. Uh, SEBP uh, strong in the UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, growing in Canada. Do, do they have CSAs as well? And what's the international CSA footprint look like?
1: Uh, yeah, so um, those countries have a chief scientific advisor, uh, as in the Sir Patrick equivalent. Um, but many of them don't have uh, department CSAs. Um, we, we as in the UK, lead the world in that sense that we have that really very rich network of CSAs that we can draw upon. Um, but but part of my role, of course, is to reach out internationally and, and those force, those police forces and others do have science experts. And, you know, if nothing else, I think it's actually quite important for us to de-conflict so that we're not funding the same piece of work and we share best practice.
0: Great stuff. Well, it's um, it's really good to have had you uh, online for this interview. Folks, if you want to join the Society of Evidence-Based Policing and become uh, one of the community, it takes about 10 seconds from the SEPP website also if you've got any questions you'd like to ask Paul uh, when we broadcast this on YouTube LinkedIn and Twitter please do I'll gather those questions and if it's okay Paul I'll, I'll send them to you and we might create a form where we can put some of the answers back as well but it's a great privilege, a privilege for us to be able to speak to you and uh, hope you have a good rest of the day Well,
1: privilege. thank you bye
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address and the type of organisation you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get
1: access to all the transcripts.